This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 6 Thoughts Around Copenic A famous and epigrammatic author said that life copied literature. It seems clear that life really caricatures it. I suggested recently that the Germans submitted to and even admired a solemn and theatrical assertion of authority. A few hours after I had set up my copy, I saw the first announcement of the affair of the comic captain at Copenic. The most absurd part of this absurd fraud, at least to English eyes, is one which, oddly enough, has received comparatively little comment. I mean the point at which the mayor asked for a warrant, and the captain pointed to the bayonets of his soldiery and said, These are my authority. One would have thought that any one would have known that no soldier would talk like that. The dupes were blamed for not knowing that the man wore the wrong cap or the wrong sash or had his sword buckled on the wrong way. But these are technicalities which they might surely be excused for not knowing. I certainly should not know if a soldier's sash were on inside out or his cap on behind before. But I should know uncommonly well that genuine professional soldiers do not talk like Adelphi villains and utter theatrical epigrams in praise of abstract violence. We can see this more clearly, perhaps, if we suppose it to be the case of any other dignified and clearly distinguishable profession. Suppose a bishop called upon me. My great modesty and my rather distant reverence for the higher clergy might lead me certainly to a strong suspicion that any bishop who called on me was bogus bishop. But if I wished to test his genuineness, I should not dream of attempting to do so by examining the shape of his apron or the way his gaiters were done up. I have not the remotest idea of the way his gaiters ought to be done up. A very vague approximation to an apron would probably take me in, and if he behaved like an approximately Christian gentleman, he would be safe enough from my detection. But suppose the bishop, the moment he entered the room, fell on his knees on the mat, clasped his hands, and poured out a flood of passionate and somewhat hysterical extempore prayer. I should say at once, and without the smallest hesitation, whatever else this man is, he is not an elderly and wealthy cleric of the Church of England. They don't do such things. Or suppose a man came to me, pretending to be a qualified doctor, and flourished a stethoscope, or what he said was a stethoscope. I am glad to say that I have not even the remotest notion of what a stethoscope looks like, so that if he flourished a musical box or a coffee mill, it would be all one to me. But I do think that I am not exaggerating my own sagacity if I say that I should begin to suspect the doctor if on entering my room he flung his legs and arms about, crying wildly, Health, health, priceless gift of nature, I possess it, I overflow with it, I yearn to impart it. Oh, the sacred rapture of imparting health! In that case I should suspect him 
of being rather in a position to receive than to offer medical superintendence. Now it is no exaggeration at all to say that anyone who has ever known any soldiers, I can only answer for English and Irish and Scotch soldiers, would find it just as easy to believe that a real bishop would grovel on the carpet in a religious ecstasy, or that a real doctor would dance about on the drawing-room to show the invigorating effects of his own medicine, as to believe that a soldier, when asked for his authority, would point to a lot of shining weapons and declare symbolically that might was right. Of course a real soldier would go rather red in the face and huskily repeat the proper formula, whatever it was, as that he came in the king's name. Soldiers have many faults, but they have one redeeming merit. They are never worshippers of force. Soldiers, more than any other men, are taught severely and systematically that might is not right. The fact is obvious. The might is in the hundred men who obey. The right, or what is held to be right, is in the one man who commands them. They learn to obey symbols, arbitrary things, stripes on an arm, buttons on a coat, a title, a flag. These may be artificial things, they may be unreasonable things, they may, if you will, be wicked things, but they are weak things. They are not force, and they do not look like force. They are parts of an idea, of the idea of discipline, if you will, of the idea of tyranny, but still an idea. No soldier could possibly say that his own bayonets were his authority. No soldier could possibly say that he came in the name of his own bayonets. It would be as absurd as if a postman said that he came inside his bag. I do not, as I have said, underrate the evils that really do arise from militarism and the military ethic. It tends to give people wooden faces and sometimes wooden heads. It tends, moreover, both through its specialization and through its constant obedience, to a certain loss of real independence and strength of character. This has almost always been found when people made the mistake of turning the soldier into a statesman, under the mistaken impression that he was a strong man. The Duke of Wellington, for instance, was a strong soldier, and therefore a weak statesman. But the soldier is always, by the nature of things, loyal to something. And as long as one is loyal to something, one can never be a worshipper of mere force, for mere force, violence in the abstract, is the enemy of anything we love. To love anything is to see it at once under lowering skies of danger. Loyalty implies loyalty in misfortune, and when a soldier has accepted any nation's uniform, he has already accepted its defeat. Nevertheless, it does appear to be possible in Germany for a man to point to fixed bayonets and say, these are my authority, and yet to convince ordinarily sane men that he is a soldier. If this is so, it does really seem to point to some habit of high-faulting in the German nation, such as that of which I spoke previously. It almost looks as if the advisers and even the officials of the German army had become infected in some degree with the false and feeble doctrine that might is right. As this doctrine is invariably preached by physical weaklings like Nietzsche, it is a very serious thing even to entertain the supposition that it is affecting men who have really to do military work. 
It would be the end of German soldiers to be affected by German philosophy. Energetic people use energy as a means, but only very tired people ever use energy as a reason. Athletes go in for games because athletes desire glory. Invalids go in for calisthenics, for invalids, alone of all human beings, desire strength. So long as the German army points to its heraldic eagles and says, I come in the name of this fierce but fabulous animal, the German army will be all right. If ever it says, I come in the name of bayonets, the bayonets will break like glass, for only the weak exhibit strength without an aim. At the same time, as I said before, do not let us forge our own faults. Do not let us forget them any more easily, because they are opposite to the German faults. Modern England is too prone to present the spectacle of a person who is enormously delighted because he has not got the contrary disadvantages of his own. The Englishman is always saying, My house is not damp, at the moment when his house is on fire. The Englishman is always saying, I have thrown off all traces of anemia in the middle of a fit of apoplexy. Let us always remember that if an Englishman wants to swindle English people, he does not dress up in the uniform of a soldier. If an Englishman wants to swindle English people, he would as soon think of dressing up in the uniform of a messenger boy. Everything in England is done unofficially, casually, by conversations and cliques. The one parliament that really does rule England is a secret parliament, the debates of which must not be published, the cabinet. The debates of the commons are sometimes important, but only the debates in the lobby, never the debates in the house. Journalists do control public opinion, but it is not controlled by the arguments they publish. It is controlled by the arguments between the editor and the sub-editor, which they do not publish. This casualness is our English vice. It is at once casual and secret. Our public life is conducted privately, hence it follows that if an English swindler wished to impress us, the last thing he would think of doing would be to put on a uniform. He would put on a polite, slouching air and a careless, expensive suit of clothes. He would stroll up to the mayor, be so awfully sorry to disturb him, find that he had forgotten his card-case, mention, as if he were ashamed of it, that he was the Duke of Mercia, and carry the whole thing through with the air of a man who could get two hundred witnesses and two thousand retainers, but who was too tired to call any of them. And if he did it very well, I strongly suspect that he would be as successful as the indefensible captain at Copenhagen. Our tendency for many centuries past has been not so much towards creating an aristocracy, which may or may not be a good thing in itself, as towards substituting an aristocracy for everything else. In England we have an aristocracy instead of a religion. The nobility are to the English poor what the saints and the fairies are to the Irish poor, what the large devil with the black face was to the Scotch poor, the poetry of life. In the same way in England we have an aristocracy instead of a government. We rely on a certain good humor and education in the upper classes to interpret to us our contradictory constitution. No educated man born of woman will be quite so absurd as the system that he has to administer. In short, we do not get good laws to restrain bad people, 
we get good people to restrain bad laws. And last of all, we in England have an aristocracy instead of an army. We have an army of which the officers are proud of their families and ashamed of their uniforms. If I were a king of any country, whatever, and one of my officers were ashamed of my uniform, I should be ashamed of my officer. Beware, then, of the really well-bred and apologetic gentleman, whose clothes are at once quiet and fashionable, whose manner is at once diffident and frank. Beware how you admit him into your domestic secrets, for he may be a bogus earl, or worse still, a real one. THE BOY I have no sympathy with international aggression when it is taken seriously, but I have a certain dark and wild sympathy with it when it is quite absurd. Raids are all wrong as practical politics, but they are human and imaginable as practical jokes. In fact, almost any act of ragging or violence can be forgiven on this strict condition, that it is of no use at all to anybody. If the aggressor gets anything out of it, then it is quite unpardonable. It is damned by the least hint of utility or profit. A man of spirit and breeding may brawl, but he does not steal. A gentleman knocks off his friend's hat, but he does not annex his friend's hat. For this reason, as Mr. Belloc has pointed out somewhere, the very militant French people have always returned after their immense raids, the raids of Godfrey, the Crusader, the raids of Napoleon. They are sucked back, having accomplished nothing but an epic. Sometimes I see small fragments of information in the newspapers, which make my heart leap with an irrational patriotic sympathy. I've had the misfortune to be left comparatively cold by many of the enterprises and proclamations of my country in recent times. But the other day I found in the Tribune the following paragraph, which I may be permitted to set down as an example of the kind of international outrage with which I have by far the most instinctive sympathy. There is something attractive, too, in the austere simplicity with which the affair is set forth. Geneva, October 31st. The English schoolboy Allen, who was arrested at Luzane Railway Station on Saturday for having painted red the statue of General Jomny of Pierne, was liberated yesterday after paying a fine of twenty-four pounds. Allen has proceeded to Germany, where he will continue his studies. The people of Pierne are indignant and clamored for his detention in prison. Now I have no doubt that ethics and social necessity require a contrary attitude, but I will freely confess that my first emotions on reading of this exploit were those of profound and elemental pleasure. There is something so large and simple about the operation of painting a whole stone general a bright red. Of course I can understand that the people of Payern were indignant. They had passed to their homes at twilight through the streets of that beautiful city, or is it a province? and they had seen against the silver ending of the sunset the grand gray figure of the hero of that land remaining to guard the town under the stars. It certainly must have been a shock to come out in the broad white morning and find a large vermilion general staring under the staring sun. I do not blame them at all for clamoring for the schoolboy's detention in prison. I dare say a little detention in prison would do him no harm.
Still, I think the immense act has something about it human and excusable, and when I endeavour to analyse the reason of this feeling, I find it to lie not in the fact that the thing was big or bold or successful, but in the fact that the thing was perfectly useless to everybody, including the person who did it. The raid ends in itself, and so Master Allen is sucked back again, having accomplished nothing but an epic. There is one thing which, in the presence of average modern journalism, is perhaps worth saying in connection with such an idle matter as this. The morals of a matter like this are exactly like the morals of anything else. They are concerned with mutual contract, or with the rights of independent human lives. But the whole modern world, or at any rate the whole modern press, has a perpetual and consuming terror of plain morals. Men always attempt to avoid condemning a thing upon merely moral grounds. If I beat my grandmother to death tomorrow in the middle of Battersea Park, you may be perfectly certain that people will say everything about it except the simple and fairly obvious fact that it is wrong. Some will call it insane, that is, will accuse it of a deficiency of intelligence. This is not necessarily true at all. You could not tell whether the act was unintelligent or not unless she knew my grandmother. Some will call it vulgar, disgusting, and the rest of it. That is, they will accuse it of a lack of manners. Perhaps it does show a lack of manners, but this is scarcely its most serious disadvantage. Others will talk about the loathsome spectacle and the revolting scene. That is, they will accuse it of a deficiency of art or aesthetic beauty. This again depends on the circumstances, in order to be quite certain that the appearance of the old lady has definitely deteriorated under the process of being beaten to death. It is necessary for the philosophic critic to be quite certain how ugly she was before. Another school of thinkers will say that the action is lacking in efficiency, that it is an uneconomic waste of a good grandmother. But that could only depend on the value which is again an individual matter. The only real point that is worth mentioning is that the action is wicked, because your grandmother has a right not to be beaten to death. But of this simple moral explanation, modern journalism has, as I say, a standing fear. It will call the action anything else, mad, bestial, vulgar, idiotic, rather than call it sinful. One example can be found in such cases as that of the prank of the boy and the statue. When some trick of this sort is played, the newspapers opposed to it always describe it as a senseless joke. What is the good of saying that? Every joke is a senseless joke. A joke is by its nature a protest against sense. It is no good attacking nonsense for being successfully nonsensical. Of course it is nonsensical to paint a celebrated Italian general a bright red. It is as nonsensical as Alice in Wonderland. It is also, in my opinion, very nearly as funny. But the real answer to the affair is not to say that it is nonsensical, or even to say that it is not funny, but to point out that it is wrong to spoil statues which belong to other people. If the modern world will not insist on having some sharp and definite moral law capable of resisting the counter-attractions of art and humor, the modern world will simply be given over as a spoil to anybody who can manage to do a nasty thing in a nice way. 
Every murderer who can murder entertainingly will be allowed to murder. Every burglar who burgles in really humorous attitudes will burgle as much as he likes. There is another case of the thing that I mean. Why on earth do the newspapers, in describing a dynamite outrage or any other political assassination, call it a dastardly outrage or a cowardly outrage? It is perfectly evident that it is not dastardly in the least. It is perfectly evident that it is about as cowardly as the Christians going to the lions. The man who does it exposes himself to the chance of being torn in pieces by two thousand people. What the thing is, is not cowardly, but profoundly and detestably wicked. The man who does it is very infamous and very brave, but again the explanation is that our modern press would rather appeal to physical arrogance or to anything rather than appeal to right and wrong. In most of the matters of modern England, the real difficulty is that there is a negative revolution without a positive revolution. Positive aristocracy is breaking up without any particular appearance of positive democracy taking its place. The polished class is becoming less polished without becoming less of a class. The nobleman who becomes a guinea pig keeps all his privileges, but loses some of his tradition. He becomes less of a gentleman without becoming less of a nobleman. In the same way, until some recent and happy revivals, it seemed highly probable that the Church of England would cease to be a religion long before it had ceased to be a church. And in the same way, the vulgarization of this old, simple middle class does not even have the advantage of doing away with class distinctions. The vulgar man is always the most distinguished, for the very desire to be distinguished is vulgar. At the same time, it must be remembered that when a class has a morality, it does not follow that it is an adequate morality. The middle class ethic was inadequate for some purposes. So is the public school ethic, the ethic of the upper classes. On this last matter of the public schools, Dr. Spencer, the headmaster of University College School, has lately made some valuable observations. But even he, I think, overstates the claim of the public schools. The strong point of the English public schools, he says, has always lain in their efficiency as agencies for the formation of character and for the inculcation of the great notion of obligation which distinguishes a gentleman. On the physical and moral sides, the public schoolmen of England are, I believe, unequaled. And he goes on to say that it is on the mental side that they are defective. But as a matter of fact, the public school training is, in the strict sense, defective upon the moral side also. It leaves out about half of morality. Its just claim is that, like the old middle class and the Zulus, it trains some virtues and therefore suits some people for some situations. Put an old English merchant to serve in an army, and he would have been irritated and clumsy. Put the men from English public schools to rule Ireland, and they make the greatest hash in human history. Touching the morality of the public schools, I will take one point only, which is enough to prove the case. People have got into their heads an extraordinary idea that English public school boys and English youth generally are taught to tell the truth. 
they are taught absolutely nothing of the kind at no english public school is it even suggested except by accident that it is a man's duty to tell the truth what is suggested is something entirely different that it is a man's duty not to tell lies so completely does this mistake soak through all civilization that we hardly ever think even of the difference between the two things when we say to a child you must tell the truth we do merely mean that he must refrain from verbal inaccuracies but the thing we never teach at all is the general duty of telling the truth of giving a complete and fair picture of anything we are talking about of not misrepresenting not evading not suppressing not using plausible arguments that we know to be unfair not selecting unscrupulously to prove an ex parte case not telling all the nice stories about the scotch and all the nasty stories about the irish not pretending to be disinterested when you are really angry not pretending to be angry when you are really only avaricious the one thing that is never taught by any chance in the atmosphere of public schools is exactly that that there is a whole truth of things and that in knowing it and speaking it we are happy if anyone has the smallest doubt of this neglect of truth in public schools he can kill his doubt with one plain question can anyone on earth believe that if the seeing and telling of the whole truth were really one of the ideals of the english governing class there could conceivably exist such a thing as the english party system why the english party system is founded upon the principle that telling the whole truth does not matter it is founded upon the principle that half a truth is better than no politics our system deliberately turns a crowd of men who might be impartial into irrational partisans it teaches some of them to tell lies and all of them to believe lies it gives every man an arbitrary brief that he has to work up as best he may and defend as best he can it turns a room full of citizens into a room full of barristers i know that it has many charms and virtues fighting and good fellowship it has all the charms and virtues of a game i only say that it would be a stark impossibility in a nation which believed in telling the truth limericks and counsels of perfection it is customary to remark that modern problems cannot easily be attacked because they are so complex in many cases i believe it is really because they are so simple nobody would believe in such simplicity of scoundrelism even if it were pointed out people would say that the truth was a charge of mere melodramatic villainy forgetting that nearly all villains really are melodramatic thus for instance we say that some good measures are frustrated or some bad officials kept in power by the press and confusion of public business whereas very often the reason is simply healthy human bribery and thus especially we say that the yellow press is exaggerative over-emotional illiterate and anarchical and a hundred other long words whereas the only objection to it is that it tells lies 
we waste our fine intellects in finding exquisite phraseology to fit a man when in a well-ordered society we ought to be finding handcuffs to fit him this criticism of the modern type of righteous indignation must have come into many people's minds i think in reading dr horton's eloquent impressions of disgust at the corrupt press especially in connection with the limerick craze upon the limerick craze itself i fear dr horton will not have much effect such fads perish before one has had time to kill them but dr horton's protest may really do good if it enables us to come to some clear understanding about what is really wrong with the popular press and which means it might be useful and which permissible to use for its reform we do not want a censorship of the press but we are long past talking about that at present it is not what we call the silence of the press it is the press that silences us it is not a case of the commonwealth settling how much the editor shall say it is a case of the editors settling how much the commonwealth shall know if we attack the press we shall be rebelling not repressing but shall we attack it now it is just here that the chief difficulty occurs it arises from the very rarity and rectitude of those minds which commonly inaugurate such crusades i have the warmest respect for dr horton's thirst after righteousness but it has always seemed to me that his righteousness would be more effective without his refinement the curse of the nonconformists is their universal refinement they dimly connect being good with being delicate and even dapper with not being grotesque or loud or violent with not sitting down on one's hat now it is always a pleasure to be loud and violent and sometimes it is a duty certainly it has nothing to do with sin a man can be loudly and violently virtuous nay he can be loudly and violently saintly though that is not the type of saintliness that we recognize in dr horton and as for sitting on one's hat if it is done for any sublime object as for instance to amuse the children it is obviously an act of very beautiful self-sacrifice the destruction and surrender of the symbol of personal dignity upon the shrine of public festivity now it will not do to attack the modern editor merely for being unrefined like the great mass of mankind we must be able to say that he is immoral not that he is undignified or ridiculous I do not mind the yellow press editor sitting on his hat. My only objection to him begins to dawn when he attempts to sit on my hat, or indeed, as is at present the case, when he proceeds to sit on my head. But in reading between the lines of Dr. Horton's invective, one continually feels that he is not only angry with the popular press for being unscrupulous, he is partly angry with the popular press for being popular. He is not only irritated with the limericks for causing a mean money scramble, he is also partly irritated with the limericks for being limericks. The enormous size of the levity gets on his nerves, like the glare and blare of a bank holiday. Now this is a motive which, however human and natural, must be strictly kept out of the way. It takes all sorts to make a world and it is not in the least necessary that everybody should have that love of subtle and unobtrusive perfections in the matter of manners or literature which does often go with the type of the ethical idealist 
it is not in the least desirable that everybody should be earnest it is highly desirable that everybody should be honest but that is a thing that can go quite easily with a coarse and cheerful character but largely due to the instinct of democracy and the instinct of democracy is like the instinct of one woman wild but quite right that the people who were trying to purify the press were also trying to refine it and to this the democracy very naturally and very justly objected we are justified in enforcing good morals for they belong to all mankind but we are not justified in enforcing good manners for good manners always mean our own manners we have no right to purge the popular press of all that we think vulgar or trivial dr horton may possibly loathe and detest limericks just as i loathe and detest riddles but I have no right to call them flippant and unprofitable. There are wild people in the world who like riddles. I am so afraid of this movement passing off into mere formless rhetoric and platform passion that I will even come close to the earth and lay down specifically some of the things that in my opinion could be and ought to be done to reform the press. First, I would make a law, if there is none such at present, by which an editor proved to have published false news without reasonable verification should simply go to prison. This is not a question of influences or atmospheres. The thing could be carried out as easily and as practically as the punishment of thieves and murderers. Of course there would be the usual statement that the guilt was that of a subordinate. Let the accused editor have the right of proving this if he can. If he does, let the subordinate be tried and go to prison two or three good rich editors and proprietors properly locked up would take the sting out of the yellow press better than centuries of dr horton second it's impossible to pass over altogether the most unpleasant but the most important part of this problem i will deal with it as distantly as possible i do not believe there is any harm whatever in reading about murders rather if anything good for the thought of death operates very powerful with the poor in the creation of brotherhood and a sense of human dignity i do not believe there is a pennyworth of harm in the police news as such even divorce news though contemptible enough can really in most cases be left to the discretion of grown people and how far children get hold of such things is a problem for the home and not for the nation but there is a certain class of evils which a healthy man or woman can actually go through life without knowing anything about at all. These, I say, should be stamped and blackened out of every newspaper with the thickest black of the Russian censor. Such cases should either be always tried in camera, or reporting them should be a punishable offense. The common weaknesses of nature and the sins that flesh is heir to, we can leave people to find in newspapers. Men can safely see in the papers what they have already seen in the streets. They may safely find in their journals what they have already found in themselves. But we do not want the imaginations of rational and decent people clouded with the horrors of some obscene insanity which has no more to do with human life than the man in Bedlam who thinks he is a chicken. And if this vile matter is admitted, let it be simply with a mention of the Latin or legal name of the crime, and with no details whatever. 
As it is, exactly the reverse is true. Papers are permitted to terrify and darken the fancy of the young with innumerable details, but not permitted to state in clean legal language what the thing is about. They are allowed to give any fact about the thing except the fact that it is a sin. Third, I would do my best to introduce everywhere the practice of signed articles. Those who urge the advantages of anonymity are either people who do not realize the special peril of our time, or they are people who are profiting by it. It is true, but futile, for instance, to say that there is something noble in being nameless when a whole corporate body is bent on a consistent aim, as in an army or men building a cathedral. The point of modern newspapers is that there is no such corporate body and common aim, but each man can use the authority of the paper to further his own private fads and his own private finances. End of section 6